The scripture today is from 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, what's going on? Are we doing good? Exciting, colorful passage today, right? Excited? I am. Um, This is going to get a little weird, okay? Um, Because there's some stuff in this passage that is... um, Well, okay, so this is one of the reasons that pastors usually don't preach through the book of 2 Peter because it gets really interesting and seems to go against a lot of other ideas that are there. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, there is some, like, if you're a, a, a Bible student um, and you're kind of upper class, like maybe four or 500 level classes, you may have heard some of this. Um, by and large, the average person will not be familiar with some of the stuff I'm saying today. So um, normally people would just like, ah, there's no point in teaching people this, but I think you're a lot smarter than 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 everybody else out there. So we're going to talk about this, and I'm going to teach it to you. Um, I don't see any reason to, to avoid anything, right? So we have, this, we have this really interesting passage today that when you read it um, at first, seems to contradict some Pauline theology, seems to contradict some of the things that Jesus said, seems to contradict some of the things that John said. Um, and people who don't understand what exactly is happening in this passage tend to try a lot of kind of fancy footwork to make it all squeeze in together and say, ta-da, look, it fits. Um, well, we're going to talk about that. Um, and so I'm going to open a word of prayer, and I'll do my absolute best to help you understand what is happening in this passage. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We come before you, and um, we know you're a God of love, and you're a God of grace and mercy. And so we ask for that grace. Um, we ask for knowledge, and we ask for your wisdom to be able to apply that knowledge in the world around us. Help us grasp um, concepts and ideas that are ancient. Um, and find ways to apply them in this modern world. You are uh, the, the revelator of, of, of all things, exactly what we need to hear. And so I ask that you would use me this morning and, and allow me to speak clearly and communicate clearly and remember the things I've studied and uh, um, give us all something, encourage us, bring us closer together and use us to uh, bring some kind of healing to our city and our world. We love you. In your name, amen. So, to understand a passage like this, there's lots of stuff going on. He talks about 
um, sort of the earth being created out of water, the earth perishing in that water, and then judgment by fire, all this stuff. And at first glance, a, a casual reading of it, you would say, oh, he's quoting Genesis, and then, and then he's kind of quoting like prophecies of like Daniel and stuff. Um, that's not actually what's happening here. Um, to fully understand this passage, we need to talk about um, another book that is actually not at all a part of the scriptures, but, but which was very contemporary to the people who, who were living in the first century. Um, the book is called the book of Enoch. Um, I've taught about it a little bit before because um, in Bible classes, in, in upper level classes, you usually have to read this book because it gets into the mindset of the first century um, Jewish leaders. Um, I guess I'll start here. There was a different form of, of literature that, that no longer exists now that was called apocryphal literature. Um, and the way this would work is a scribe or a poet or somebody who um, had something to say and had a theological argument to make would write from a perspective of somebody who was part of their faith tradition from generations past. And so there are books out there. There's one called uh, The Gospel of Mary. There's one called The Gospel of Judas. Um, they weren't written by Mary or Judas. They were, um, there's The Gospel of Thomas. It wasn't written by Thomas. They were written by people who assumed the persona of Thomas or Mary or Judas and would write letters that the, the one um, Gospel of Mary has a political bend to it. It's sort of a political commentary. Um, the one with Judas and uh, Thomas, I believe, are theological arguments for who God is and how God interacts with human beings. Um, this was not a dishonest way to write. It was never considered dishonest. It was considered a work of art. It was considered um, a valid way to argue a point. And so you have these ancient books, the book of Enoch. There's five of them, um, one, two, three, four, five, but they weren't written actually in chronological order. Um, first Enoch, I believe, was actually written third, and they weren't even written by the same person. They weren't written by Enoch. They were written by five different people for different reasons, each picking up the theological ideas of the previous one and adding to them. Um, and in this tradition, they would retell the Genesis stories, they would retell the Exodus stories, and they would aggrandize them, and they would change them to make theological points and arguments. Um, the book of First Enoch is actually mentioned three times in Second in Peter alone, um, and the book of Jude actually quotes, directly quotes the book of uh, First Enoch, I think chapter 8, or maybe 9. Um, but they didn't hold to them as the canon of Scripture. They didn't hold to them as the words of the prophets. They were sort of like books today that fill the shelves of, of like the, the religious section in the bookstore. They were the larger conversation about theology, about who God is. And so in these stories, they would change the flood story. So in, in, this, um, in the book of Enoch, um, there is a, flood, a, a Genesis story where it has sort of the earth looks like sort of a snow globe, if you will, and everything's on the inside. And there's some gates at the top that open up and water pours in. And the earth was created up out of the water, um, very similar to, to Genesis. But then it, it actually... Um, during the flood story, it actually fills the entire thing with water and the heavens are destroyed too and, and, and good and evil in the spiritual realm is also destroyed and everything's reset. So it's totally different. And then there is this ending story where the heavens melt and fall and, and destroy the earth. So all of this is written to make a point about God. Now, to what extent did the people believe these things were true? Um, I imagine a lot of people believe that these stories were the way it was. Um, and I believe a lot of Peter's audience did too. Peter references this book of Enoch three times um, for a specific reason. 
And it's important that you understand the reason he references it. Um, and we're going to get to that today. Um, but uh, there is a passage in, um, let's see, where is it? <clears throat> the second, in chapter two, second Peter chapter two, where he talks about, we talked about it a little bit, angels being banished to this place called Tartarus in the Greek. We just translated hell, but the word is Tartarus. It's below Hades in Greek mythology. Uh, he references that. And then he references um, the, uh, the archangel Michael. Uh, well, he doesn't directly reference it, but he references a story about an argument with the angels before God. What's going on there is, uh, it's actually in chapter 2, verse 11. So if you want to go back and read that sometime, here's what's happening. Um, in the book of Enoch, there's the story of, of the archangel Michael, and he has the body of Moses. Um, so it's retelling the Exodus story. And so he is going to bury the body of Moses, but Satan is there arguing with God. I get the body because it killed somebody. And so there's this, it's a theological argument. Um, and so Peter is writing to a people who are very, very familiar with these stories. It was part of their conversation. Um, some of the things that are written in here are not the things that Paul believed or Jesus taught or John wrote, like, it doesn't line up, but Peter addresses it from a different angle. He's not affirming the things. He's actually entering into the story, and he's going to talk about God. And I hope you can grasp this, because it's, 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 it's an important way that the ancient apostles um, would enter into a culture and infuse it with the story of Jesus, um, trusting that the Spirit would do its work and they would change. Paul does this himself. Um, Paul walks into a city called Athens at one point, and there's this part of the city called Mars Hill where the people would gather and they would debate things. And so Paul's a Jewish rabbi. Um, Jewish rabbis believed they were, they were monotheistic. The, the idea of, that means there was one God. Um, the idea of there being many gods was absolutely offensive to them. And so Paul walks into Athens and... That city worshipped thousands of gods, and so there's these idols everywhere. And the message of Jesus, the apostles hadn't gone there before. And so Paul walks into this city, and I'm sure he's like, oh, it's kind of, I get the feeling that that guy from, from the first Jurassic Park, as he's the dinosaur, oh, that's nice, okay? Um, and he's walking in, and he's talking to people, and he actually walks up on a hill um, to talk to all these guys, and he goes, I've noticed that you are very religious people, sort of like. Very religious. Um, idols everywhere. So, uh, and, and so he, what he does is he doesn't enter into the story and, and say, we need to wipe all this clean and start over fresh again. He doesn't do this. He enters into their story and he says, I've noticed you are very religious people. Honestly, that's like entering into a, a camp at ISIS and saying, I've noticed you appreciate a monochromatic wardrobe. <laughs> I've noticed you really like social media. And your go-getters. Um, so, and this is sort of like entering into like enemy territory and, and talking this way. So Paul, he walks in, he says, there's this, I see that you have an idol that has a plaque next to it with no name. And it says to the unknown God, just in case there's somebody that you forgot and you want to make them mad. Okay. So I get that. I would like to tell you who that God is that you, you're, you're missing, who you forgot about. Okay, so he doesn't enter in and say, you need to wipe all this clean and we're going to start over and start here. He walks into their story and he points out something different and he plants the seed of Christ and allows it to grow. Missionaries do this today. I have a brother who's mission, missionary in a tribe in West Papua, Indonesia. By the way, I found out he's, he's going to come and speak in like a month. Um, so that's fun. I haven't seen him in forever. We're going to catch up. Um, and I uh, didn't even know he was coming. He's just like, hey, bro, coming to speak. Okay, cool. Um, 
I'll come speak at your tribe sometime. Um, <laughs> what should I wear or not wear? I don't know. <laughs> what was I saying? Okay, so he walks into this tribe, and they have crazy beliefs to the extent where people are dying, and they're hanging them from trees upside down by their feet, um, and they're watching them decompose, assuming that the demons are eating their flesh. And so, this is what, and, and so my brother walks into this, and he doesn't just wipe all their beliefs out and change them all. He tells them a new story. And their story slowly changes. And so people sometimes change bit by bit. Um, Somebody who has a lot of issues in their life, maybe they're um, addicted to all kinds of substances um, and they're alcoholic and and, and they're just chain smoker and and maybe they do, um, maybe they're just a heroin addict and and still at the same time they're uh, massively overweight and they're sedentary and they have no drive and they're lazy. They go to a therapist. The therapist is not going to say, tomorrow you're going to stop doing all these things and you're going to work really hard. That's not how it works. Maybe the therapist will look at them and say, okay, so tomorrow we're actually going to stop drinking coffee. Why? What does coffee have to do with any of my problems? Well, I want to show you that you can change something that you feel that you need, the smallest thing that you feel you need. And so it's sort of this baby step thing. And maybe this has been some of your faith journey, like you were just a mess, and it's just one tiny little step 1% every day, slight change moving forward. This is how sanctification works. So Peter walks into this this, uh, city, and there is, he's writing letters to these people who we talked about previous week, uh, previous week, last week, um, are, are making this argument that goes like this. He says, there are scoffers with their scoffing, he says, um, and he says, they are basically saying, there's no God because we don't seem to see anything being interacted with. Um, things just, the forefathers died and their children were born and they died, their children were born and they died and things just continue, seem to continue on without God interacting with anything. Where is your God? And so Peter writes to them knowing their belief system and the way that they think and instead of wiping it all out and correcting it, he enters into it. And so here's how it goes. Verse five starts like this. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So he starts off saying, you believe no one has ever interacted, that it's just, it's just kind of continuing like this and, and, and you think that just God's just not present. But you yourself have a system of belief that at once there was nothing and then there was something. There was an introduction of life and, and the cosmos into space and time. So there was something, there was a change. And then he goes a little farther and he says this, uh, the heavens will pass away with a roar and, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so verse 10, so he, first off, verse five, you believe, believe, believe there was a beginning? You believe there will be an end? You believe all of this is just gonna wrap up and, and burn and it's just gonna end? So I'm gonna enter into your story and now I have a question for you. And he says this in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since everything around us is just going to burn and disappear, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people should you be in the lives of holiness and godliness? So he doesn't get into the arguments about how we got here or where this is all heading. He goes deeper into their hearts, into their souls, into their minds and says, let me ask you about you, though. 
We can talk about what's going on all around us all you want, what's going on in the exterior, exterior world. People do that all day today. They debate this. I mean, the arguments that Peter's using here, you can just bring them into today's context. Singularity, explosion, um, one day, the end, burn, fire, nothing. But let's talk about you and your soul and your heart, what's going on inside of you. Um, and so he skips the whole kind of fight. So let's look at this verse a little bigger, uh, 11 and 12. Since these, th- since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So he skips the whole fight. He says, so while you're sitting here, waiting for all the fire and the brimstone and all the death to happen, and you're actually hastening it. He says they're waiting for it to happen. They're excited about it. You ever met people like that? They're just, I'm done with this job. I want this whole place to burn. I've met people like that. Um, Have you ever, I mean, I've heard people talk about the struggle in their marriage. You know, they're having trouble just finding their happiness again. And and so, you know what? Maybe I should just set fire to the whole thing. Maybe I'm out. Maybe I'm done. There's this hopelessness that comes with the thought that nothing's changing, that God's not moving. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've experienced some of that. And so Peter says, well, while you're waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, while, you want, while you're waiting for all this to just burn and, and disintegrate, you're alive now. You're here. You can make decisions now. You have thoughts and emotions and feelings, and, and there's a philosophy that you have on life. I want to talk to you about these sacred things that, that actually have meaning and purpose to you that you're ignoring in these grand statements. What sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? So let's talk about it this way. We all, I mean, who here believes at some point they're going to die in their life? (laughs) Wow, very few of you. (laughs) Grand dreams. Um, No, this this is the future. This is it. I don't want to bum you out. But let's be honest for a second. This is where this is heading. We are here for a short, finite amount of time. And in the end, um, and if you, so if you, if you, if you read the, the, the work of scientists for the last couple decades, they say they can pinpoint, um, mathematically tell you when, how far away, how many hundreds of millions of years it is until the earth is just gone. They say, I mean, if we survive the collision of our galaxy with our neighbor galaxy, um, we're still, like, we made it. And then we get sucked into a black hole, and it's all over. <laughs> um, none of us are getting out of this alive, right? So, um, it's interesting because it's the same conversation. There was this event. There will be an event. And here we are now, and we are being told this is all meaningless. And so the scientists will admit to you um, all of history, all of human history, everything that has ever happened, every story that has been told, every book that's been written, movie that's made, every relationship, every word that's ever been spoken, every bit of, of research and advancement that we've made into the realms of philosophy or the arts or um, scientific research and, and, and space travel will all just be gone one day and there will be no one left to ever know that we were ever here or that any of this ever happened. That's, what, that's the story that they're putting out. 
And so Peter could walk into this story and make the same exact argument. But let's talk about right now. You're here. You're alive. Let's talk about uh, how, you are, how you should live in, in, in these moments of, of holiness in your life. Because the fact is, the scientist that's telling you this still wakes up in the morning and kisses his daughter on the forehead and makes her breakfast and laughs. He works real hard and then lays down on his bed at the end of the day after working a long, hard day, and he's fulfilled, which is cognitive dissonance from the things that you believe is going to happen. I'm fulfilled. Life is good. No, it's apparently meaningless, and it's going to end in a black hole real bad. Okay, so this is, there's, there's a bit of a separation here, and Peter enters into the story, and this is the kind of stuff that he says. Um, literally, since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? And so I want to open up this phrase because there's some beautiful stuff in here. Okay, so um, it's, I'm not going to bum you out anymore. Let's, let's get happy, shall we? So there's some words here. Um, the word for holiness. Normally the word holy is the word hagios. Um, the word holiness is two words, hagios and ostrophe. Everyone say hagios and ostrophe. Ding, ding. Well done. Okay, so hagios, again, means different. It means sacred. It means not sort of set apart, not, not sort of in nature, like not normal. It's different. It's sort of above. It's transcendent. Um, anastrophe is a word that means behavior or interaction. So what he's saying here is, so since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since it's all going to get, when we get sucked into the black hole, yeah, that's coming. But, but right now, you, you seem to have these really sacred interactions with people that have a lot of meaning and weight and purpose. I want to talk about that because I think there's something different in you that's actually higher above what your brain is telling you. And I want to, I want to talk to that part of you, that side of you. Okay, so there's another word he uses here. Um, the word is godliness. It's the word eusebeia. Everyone say eusebeia. Eusebeia, okay. Uh, it's a word that, that means basically we can translate it as religion, godliness, religion. Religion gets a bad rap. Um, sometimes for me. Um, and uh, it's, religion is an, is an interesting word, actually, if, if you actually pick it apart. It, um, you can pick it into two words. Uh, it comes from the word ligament and re. Re means sort of again. Ligament is uh, the parts of your body that hold the other parts together. They're supposed to be together so that you can have life. And so religion can be described as the act of putting together that which has been pulled apart. That's religion. It doesn't have to be a set of spiritual laws. It's you seeing that there is a way things are supposed to be, that they were, looks like they were created this way, and they've been ripped apart. And you're going to put them back together. Paul, the rabbi Paul, follower of Jesus, Apostle Paul, describes religion very simply. Pure and undefiled religion is caring for the orphans and widows in their distress. It's exactly what this is. The orphan has been separated, torn away from the parents. The, the wife has been torn away from the husband. Death has taken them. And religion is the art of seeing the tear and the brokenness and working towards repairing as much damage as we can. That is what religion is. And so there is this contrast that Peter paints um, that it, it sort of goes like this. You have verse 12, which says, he describes them, the scoffers, 
with their scoffing, are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Very grim outlook. And he says, that's you, but us, followers of Jesus, the Christians, here's us, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says, look, you can hasten and and hope for and wait for all of this to just be destroyed and burned. But all I know is I'm here now and I'm alive and I have a God who loves me and I have purpose and meaning and I am partnering with that God because we are not waiting for destruction. We are waiting for something new, new heavens, new earth. That's what resurrection is about, is it not? He says, that's the people of God. That's the Jesus people. This is who we are. We are not the people who just want to abandon. That's Gnosticism. Oftentimes, um, Christianity um, takes on this form of Gnosticism, uh, Greco-Roman Gnosticism, which is matter is evil and bad, spirit is good, and so the ultimate goal in life is to escape matter and to be spirit. That's, I grew up kind of believing that, that but a form of that, but that's not Christianity. That's Gnosticism. Christianity believes in resurrection, the, the reconciling of all things to God, making things whole again. So he says, look, this is you. You're sitting around and you're waiting for all this to just fall apart. I believe it's going to be fixed. I believe it can be changed. And not only that, I'm joining. I'm taking part in it. I'm going to religion things. Okay, so, um, right? I'm going to religion things. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So you have... The story of the scriptures, that is it. It's God fixing the things which have been torn apart from the very beginning until now and beyond. We, have, we were created to be this way. We have been ripped apart from our creator and from each other. And God is working to put it back together. And so he's interacting constantly, giving us ways to know that, look, um, just come back. Let's reconcile this um, constantly through the works of the prophets, through the works in the temple, through the work of Jesus. And so the fascinating thing is when you get to the story of Jesus, it's the ultimate picture of, of what it means to celebrate the resurrection in the news, even at his birth. So at his birth, he's brought three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, I mean, I never knew what myrrh was growing up. Um, apparently it's not an essential oil, um, much more useful. It's, uh, it's apparently a, uh, a, a burial spice to be chopped up and ground up and put on a dead body. I want you to think about this. You're a Jewish reader and you know this, this is how bodies are, are buried. And at the birth of Jesus, he's brought myrrh. That's the equivalent of, oh, hey, I'm here to see your new baby. Let me see her. Oh, I brought a gift. Hold on. It's a tombstone. I had it engraved. <laughs> there's the birth date. I le- there's an sp- empty space here. You can fill that in. That's what's happening here. So offensive, right? Oh, okay. All right, thank you for reminding us we're all going to die at the birth of our child. Um, it's like a Sufjan album being written right there. Um, so it's, this is the gift that was brought to the birth of Jesus. So any Jewish reader is reading this and they're thinking, 
at the birth of the Messiah, the gift that he's given is a reminder of his death. That his death is a gift. That his life is finite, but it's meaningful. It's a gift. Yes, we're all going to die, but life is a gift. And the meaning is actually twofold with Jesus because his own death was a gift. There is a tradition in Christianity. Um, we, we do communion every single week. Um, and we're, I'm not doing it right now, so don't get up, communion servers. Um, we do communion every single week. And uh, in some Christian traditions, the communion is called the Eucharist, um, which is a fascinating word. Eucharist, if you split this in half, the word charis is the word gift. And, and the beginning means good. So you have um, good, well, charis is the word grace. Grace is gift. Good gift. So we celebrate and we take, um, we take some bread and it represents the body of Christ broken for us and we dip it in wine which represents the blood of Christ spilled for us and we eat it and, and we sort of, we're fed and nourished and by, by the gift of the death of someone else. And so somehow the death of Christ is a good gift. And this says a lot about the message of Jesus in this world. That we receive good only because he was poured out. Because his life was poured out for you. How many of you have ever been in a movie and you are inspired by what you're experiencing? You're just inspired and you walk out of that movie thinking, somehow that changed me. That happened to me actually a long time ago. There's, uh, you ever seen the movie uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? I walked out of that movie thinking, first off, that was a perfect movie. Second, wow, I need to live every moment to its fullest. Okay, um, updated my Zanga. Was, um, that'll date like most of you. Um, but how many of you have like read a book either by a theologian or a novelist and this book changed you? How many of you have read, heard a record and a song and it changed you? Or someone invented a, a pill for you and it healed you? Or some work of somebody else helped you in some massive way. The only reason you were blessed by that movie is because someone lived in New Zealand for three years and worked 18-hour days for you for three years. The only reason that book inspired you is because someone laid hunched over a computer um, in a silent room um, for nine months. The only reason anything you have blessed you is because someone else poured themselves out for you. This is the idea behind the Eucharist. We are called, the, the church is, is the community of the Eucharist. We are the body of Christ. It's supposed to be broken and poured out for the healing of the nations. We are the people of the Eucharist. This is what we do. We are to be broken and poured out for those around us. We give of our time and our talents and our treasures. I alliterated, see that? And we give of ourselves to the world around us. And this is how we are to spend our time. Look, the world can run around and worry about how everything's going to end. And, and, and look, here's how, it, here's how it began. Here's how it's going to end. And if you'd like, you can, I guess, spend time like talking about all this stuff and trying to figure it all out. But why don't you dive beneath that and say, look, you are here now. And you know deep in your heart that there are these sacred interactions that you have that somehow you desire purpose and meaning. That's calling out to something. And what are you going to do? And day by day, you're going to wake up how, how are you to live with these sacred interactions going on all around you and this feeling of maybe disconnection from 
a transcendent being in your life. And what does this all mean for you? Does it have any purpose, any bearing on your life? Why does it matter if you love your kids or you beat them? It does, and you know it. How? And so instead of spending all this time arguing, he dives down deep. And he says, we are the people who exist as Jesus to pour ourselves out for the world. We are the community of the Eucharist. The good gift, which only comes to others because it hurts us. Jesus did this for us. We should do this for others. This is how we exist. And so he enters into their world. And he says, look, even in your story, there's some meaning right here. And you're missing it. You are alive. Your life is a gift. All of these things that you love have meaning and purpose. I want to point you to that meaning and that purpose. It has to do with God and his son Jesus did some amazing things for you. Let me tell you about it. Okay? That's how this works. So I think this is a good time to, to take communion. So uh, our communion servers, you guys can, can gather. You can meet in the back and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, that's what this is about, the communion. Reminding ourselves every day that, that Jesus was broken and poured out for our salvation for our healing, for our reconciliation, and we put our hope in him. And we follow him, knowing that his work and his way in this world and his teaching, we follow in that path because we believe that is the path of healing. And so we take some time and we take some bread and we take some wine and we, we pray and we talk to God and we repent of the ways that we've uh, missed the mark. That's the definition of sin, the way that we've, that we've not lived up to the way that we were supposed to, that we were created to live. And we take a piece of bread, we rip it off, we separate it from the rest of the body. We dip it in the wine and we eat it. And we are fed. And we ask God to take the gospel inside of us and touch the places of our life that have yet to be touched by the gospel. So let's take some time and our communion servers are spread around the room. Uh, if you need prayer, right through these doors on the left, there's a prayer room there. There will be somebody there to pray with you. If you need to get something off your chest, if you need to confess some sins, we are the followers of Jesus. Scriptures call us the priesthood of the saints, which means we can hear confessions and we can say, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus because of what he has done. And we can leave everything at the foot of the cross when we take communion. So, um, let's spend some time in prayer and then take communion. Well, pray with me. Father, we love you. You are holy, you are good. Help us to repent fully and be made whole again. Help us to be reminded that because you were broken and poured out for us, we find salvation and healing, salvation for our souls, salvation in every aspect of our life. Continue to lead us, guide us, make us whole. Make us what you want us to be. Make us your people, the people of the Eucharist, that follow you and pour ourselves out for the healing of the nations and for the salvation and the reconciliation of all things to you. We are not hopeless. We have incredible hope because of the resurrection. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus.